0: Several days after Paul had appealed to Rome and about three weeks after Festus had been named governor, King Agrippa shows up in Caesarea as a gesture of goodwill. He wants to greet the new governor. Now this is Herod Agrippa II. He is the king of Galilee. He was the last in the line of the Herods. His great-grandfather was Herod the Great who murdered the children in Bethlehem at the birth of Christ. His great-uncle was Herod Antipas who executed John the Baptist and tried Jesus. His father was Herod Agrippa I who killed James, imprisoned Peter, and was struck dead by an angel and eaten by worms in Acts chapter 12. So this is quite a family tree. And he fits right in because it tells us here he is arriving with his sister, Bernice. Historians tell us that they were not just traveling partners, but that they had an incestuous relationship, one that incensed the Jews and was the subject of gossip in Rome. And so he needed to hear what Paul had to say. But he arrives in Caesarea out of courtesy. For the new governor. Second reason is curiosity in verses 14 to 22. And while they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix. While Agrippa is there, Festus brings up the case of Paul. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for for a sentence of condemnation upon him. The Jews wanted me to condemn him, verse 16, and I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. Festus said, I won't condemn anybody without a trial. And so verse 17, after they had assembled here in Caesarea, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. And when the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement about him, about their own religion, and about a certain dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. Festus says, I was set up for a Roman trial and the charges took me by surprise. Because the main issue was they were upset because Paul was claiming that a certain dead man named Jesus was alive. Now he had that right. Because that is the foundation of the gospel. And that is the issue that separated Christianity from Judaism. Verse 20 And being at a loss how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these matters. Festus says, I was just the new governor, and so I got out my governor's manual, and there was nothing about this in there. And so I said, well, Paul, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial? And verse 21, but when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I send him To Caesar. He wouldn't go to Jerusalem, and so he appealed to Caesar, and I'm holding him to send him there. Verse 22, and Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. And Festus said, Tomorrow you shall hear. This dead man who is asserted to be alive caught the curiosity of Agrippa. And I'm sure he had a lot of stories floating around in his family about Jesus. His great-grandfather was so threatened by Jesus that he attempted to kill him. His great-uncle was so intimidated by Jesus that he believed he was John the Baptist, risen from the dead. And his father had Peter chained to two soldiers and and guarded in a prison, and Peter walked out in the middle of the night. And so now he gets to speak with the main spokesman of Christianity face-to-face, and he's curious. But there's a third reason for this opportunity, and that is conceit in verse 23. And so on the next day, when Agrippa had come together with Bernice amid great pomp, and had entered the auditorium accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Now this is quite a scene. He takes this occasion not only to bring Paul in, but also to honor Agrippa. And the word pomp, is the only time that word is used in the New Testament. It means a grand, showy pageant. Festus pulled out all the stops. And Agrippa comes in decked out in all his royalty. He's got the purple robe and the golden crown and the rings and the scepter and Bernice is all decked out. And all of the soldiers and commanders are in full dress uniform. And the prominent men of the city are wearing their finest clothes. And then in contrast, they bring Paul in. Now, historians tell us that Paul was short, bald, and had a big nose. On top of that, we can figure from Scripture that he had some kind of eye stigmatism. And so he didn't really command attention when he walked into a room. The consensus about Paul's appearance is expressed in 2 Corinthians 10.10. It says his personal presence is unimpressive. That was on a good day. This is not a good day. He's just come out of jail. Probably hasn't had a chance to shower. He's coming in in his his orange jailhouse robe, you know, with the little numbers sewn on it. And he's led in by two guards. And this is quite a scene. He comes into this who's who in Caesarea, making a fashion statement. In comes Paul, little short guy, big nose, bald head, not looking very impressive. But you see, you have to be careful that you don't analyze things on appearance only. Ray Steadman analyzed this situation this way. He said, this is the enthroned prisoner appearing before the enslaved king. And what brought about this opportunity, it was the conceit of King Agrippa. He hadn't learned much from his father. He wanted the glory as well. And then there's a fourth reason this came about, and that is confusion in verses 24 to 27. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all you gentlemen here present with us, you behold this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me both at Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. The stage is set. Festus introduces Paul and he says, this is a man that all the Jews think ought to die. Verse 25, But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, and since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him, yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my lord. I know he hasn't committed anything worthy of death. I have decided to send him to Rome, to the Caesar, but my problem is I don't have any charges. And so he says, continuing in verse 26, Therefore I brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write, for it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. Festus is in more trouble than Paul because if he sends Paul to Rome without any charges, he's going to look like an inept governor. And so he's hoping out of this hearing to clear up the confusion. And so there's several factors that bring about this opportunity. There's Agrippa's courtesy, Agrippa's curiosity, Agrippa's conceit, and Festus's confusion. But I want you to notice something. I want you to notice what Paul did to orchestrate this opportunity. Nothing. He was sitting in his jail cell. See, he did nothing to bring about this opportunity, but when the opportunity came, he was ready. Which brings us to the second point, the recourse. Chapter 26, verses 1 to 23. And Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. Now, there are no accusers here because this is not really a trial, this is simply a hearing. And Agrippa is not going to make a decision that's binding. And so, though Paul calls this his defense, he's not really defending himself on this occasion. He's defending the gospel. His goal is not to exonerate himself. His goal is to convert Agrippa. Verse 2, in regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Paul begins with a compliment and a request. The compliment is, King Agrippa, you're an expert in the customs of the Jews because you are Jewish And I count it a favor that I get to present my case before you. And then he gives a request, and that is he begs the king to listen to him patiently. Why? Because his soul is at stake. And not only that, I think Paul looks at this as sort of his last opportunity to reach Israel. He knows he's going to Rome. This is his last opportunity that maybe he can reach the king. And if he can reach the king with the gospel, maybe Israel... Will follow, And so on this occasion, Paul proceeds to give his testimony. And we can divide it into three parts. A three-part outline that really is the outline of every testimony. What I was, what happened to me, and what I am now. First of all, what I was is in verses 4 to 11. So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time previously, if they're willing to testify, that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. Paul says, all the Jews know what I used to be like because I grew up in Jerusalem. And they could tell you all about it. If they were willing to testify, I was one of the outstanding young men of Judaism. I was a card carrying Pharisee. I was the strictest of the strict. And then, having said that, he sort of points out a little irony here in verse 6. He says, And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. I am on trial because of the promise that God made to our fathers. What is that promise? The resurrection. And then he says in verse 7, The promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King, I am being accused by the Jews. You see the irony? I'm on trial because of a promise God made to, the, to our fathers about the resurrection. And our countrymen today are serving every day trying to attain to this same hope, the resurrection. And these people are accusing me because I'm preaching the resurrection. And then his question in verse 8 is, why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? And he's speaking to Agrippa, who is a Jew, and he's speaking to him saying, you people, the Jews. And what he's saying is, since God promised it, and since you're hoping in it, why is it considered so incredible that I'm proclaiming it? That's a great question. But Paul doesn't wait for the answer because he knows that he used to be just like them and he thought the same way. And so he goes right into the way he thought. Verse 9. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I heard about Jesus. I heard what people said about him. I heard about the miracles. I heard about his teaching. I heard that he was crucified. I heard that his followers said he rose from the dead. But I concluded that he was a false teacher, and so I was hostile to his name. Verse 10, and this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them, and as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. Paul says, in Jerusalem, I locked up Christians in prison, punished them, tried to force them to blaspheme, and I cast my vote against them. And that may be an indication that he was actually one of the members of the Sanhedrin having voting power over the death of individuals. And then verse 11 continues, And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Paul says, I was so enraged that I wasn't satisfied just to persecute them in Jerusalem. I chased them to foreign cities. And so Paul says, here's what I was. I was a Pharisee and I was hostile to the name of Jesus. Second point, what happened to me? Verses 12 to 15. While thus engaged, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. A funny thing happened to Paul while he was trying to stamp out Christianity he became a Christian. He saw a light and he heard a voice. And this description gives us some unique details that we don't find in other descriptions. It tells us that the light was brighter than the sun. It tells us that it blazed around Paul and his companions. It tells us that they all fell to the ground. And it tells us that the voice spoke in Hebrew. Some have said that means we'll speak Hebrew in heaven. If that's the case, some of us are going to be in trouble. There's one other unique detail here, and that is the words, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad was a long, sharp stick that a shepherd used to direct animals, livestock. And when an animal kicked against the goat, it it became more painful. He was fighting a losing battle and he was also not cooperating with the one who was trying to help him. And that's what God is saying to Paul here. You're fighting a losing battle because you're fighting against God. And you're fighting against the very one who wants to help you. And that's why he asked the question, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says in verse 15, Who art thou, Lord? If I'm persecuting you, then I must not know who you are. Who are you, Lord? And the answer comes back, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And that statement had to rock his world. Because everything Paul believed about Jesus was dead wrong. He thought he was dead. He thought he was buried in a Judean grave. He thought at best the disciples had stolen his body. Now he finds out that Jesus is alive. He thought he was a false teacher. Now he finds out that he is Lord. And here we see the grace of the Lord Jesus as he reaches out to his worst enemy and draws him in to the grace of God. And that's an exciting truth because Romans chapter 5 and verse 10 says that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. So, Paul tells us what happened to him. And then, thirdly, he tells us what I am in verses 16 to 23. Jesus says, But arise and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you. Paul immediately gets a new commission, and two titles kind of express his new responsibility. Number one, he's called a minister. That's the Greek word for an under rower. In in the ships of that day, they had slaves down in the hull and there were oars sticking out the side of the ship and they would row those oars. The under rower was the slave who was on the bottom. He was the lowest of the slaves. Down underneath other slaves rowing these oars. And that's the word Jesus uses for Paul. And that's interesting because Paul in Judaism had had a lot of titles That were very influential. Now he's converted to Christianity and he is an under rowing slave. That's not his relationship with other Christians. That is his relationship now with Jesus Christ. No longer is he rebelling against him, now he is obeying him at his every word. And the second title used here is witness. He would tell what he had seen and heard. And where is He sent? Verse 17, Delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Why is He sending Him? Verse 18, To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in men. Now that's a loaded verse. He says to Paul, The reason I'm sending you out is so that other people can experience what you have experienced. Mankind is in a sad state. This verse reminds us that people are blind, in the darkness, under the dominion of Satan, under condemnation for their sins of the past, and they have no investment in the future. I was listening to television on Friday, and I heard something that uh, would have made me laugh if it wasn't so sad. A reporter was talking about Gene Autry and he said at the time of his death he had accumulated huge real estate investments. And I wanted to say, hello? At the time of his death he had no real estate investments. He had lost them all. But see, we look at life and say that's something to be admired. But he had Nothing. A few minutes later on the television, I heard somebody, a sportscaster, say that a certain ball player had attained baseball immortality. And then his next line was, it doesn't get any better than this. It doesn't? I mean, what is baseball immortality? I mean, that's a game. It's only been around for a little over a hundred years. I mean, they send your bat to Cooperstown until they can't pay the rent anymore. And then you've lost your immortality. We live in a world that doesn't see the truth. And so Paul goes out and his commission is to turn people from blindness to sight, from darkness to light, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God, from condemnation to forgiveness, and from spiritual poverty to a heavenly inheritance. And how does it happen? Look at those last words in verse 18 by faith in me. I spoke last weekend at a retreat in Fredericktown, and after my first session, I came outside, and a lady kind of stopped me and said, "Uh, that was confusing. Now, I tend to try to take everything as a compliment, so I said, well, good. You know, that, that means you were listening. And she said, yeah, I was listening, but... You're saying this, and other people are saying this, and I was brought up to believe this, and I'm just so confused. After my last session on Sunday, she said to me, I understood everything you said. You know why? Because on Saturday night, she placed her faith in Jesus Christ. And that's all it takes to come from darkness to light. That's all it takes to have your eyes open to spiritual truth. Verse 19, Consequently, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judah and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Paul says, I got my commission and I carried it out. Verse 21, For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. Just as Paul had once pursued Christians to death, now Paul was being pursued to death by the Jews. Verse twenty-two. And so, having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying. I want you to underline that those words. I stand to this day testifying. You know, it's one thing to have a great beginning with visions and voices. But it's another thing to keep going when the going gets tough. And Paul could say 25 years after his salvation experience, 25 years of persecution and difficulty, Paul could say, I stand to this day testifying. That kind of testimony is hard to argue with because it demonstrates the genuineness of his conversion and the faithfulness of God. And then he goes on in verse 22 to say, testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of His resurrection from the dead, He should be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Paul says, in all those 25 years, my message has been the same. Didn't matter if I was speaking to small or great in the eyes of the world. He says, I am giving the same message that Moses and the prophets said would take place, that the Messiah would suffer, die, and rise again and be the first to proclaim light to the Jews and the Gentiles. And now I am following after, declaring that same light, and we are still proclaiming it today. And so there's Paul's testimony. I was a Pharisee and hostile to the name of Jesus, but I met the risen Lord on the Damascus road, and now I am His witness bringing other people into the light. Which brings us to the third point, and that is the response in verses 24 to 32. Paul's testimony gets three responses. Number one is ridicule. Verse 24, And while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. Have you noticed that Paul rarely gets to finish a message? says, while he's still speaking, Festus is listening to him. He's talking about this dead man Jesus, and he's seen him and he's had a conversation with him. And Festus has had all he can take. He says... You're nuts. Now, obviously, he doesn't believe that Paul is a lunatic or he would have brought in the guys with the white coats. He would never have sent him to Rome to to Caesar if he thought he was a madman. What Festus is doing here is he's deflecting the truth. He's listening to Paul. He can tell that Paul is sincere, and so he knows he's only got two options. Either Paul is right... Or Paul is nuts. Now you may have had people react to you that way. If you have, you're in good company. Because in John 10:20, the Jews said that Jesus was insane. Here, Festus says that Paul is insane. So if you hear that, you're in good company. What's Paul's response? Verse 25. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. When somebody calls you nuts, what do you want to do? Bark back, right? I like what Paul does here. He calls him most excellent pests. He's composed, he's polite, but he says to him, I'm not out of my mind. In fact, these are the most sane words you will ever hear me say because I'm talking about words that have to do with eternal life and eternal death. Second response is sarcasm in verses 26 to 29. For the king knows about these matters and I speak to him also with confidence since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice for this has not been done in a corner. Paul turns his attention to the king now and he says, King, I know that you're not going to call me insane because you know that the facts that I'm talking about with Jesus Christ are true. They didn't happen in a corner. He was the most famous individual in Judah for the three years he was ministering. Crowds followed after him. He healed people. He taught. He was persecuted, prosecuted, and crucified. He rose from the dead. The Jews paid off the Romans to say that the disciples took his body. And he looks at the king and he says, you know that these facts are true because they weren't done in a corner. And then he follows that with another question, verse 27. King Agrippa Do you believe the prophets? And apparently he didn't get a response. And so he says in verse 27, I know that you do. You see what he's doing? He says, you know that the facts are true about Jesus. You also know that what the prophets say are true. And since they match up, the only conclusion is what? That Jesus is Messiah. And Agrippa realizes that he's getting painted into a corner. And so he decides to do something in verse 28. And Agrippa replied to Paul, In a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. Now some people think he's sincere. I I don't. I think what he's doing is he feels like he's getting pressure and so he's looking for a way out and he says this in sarcasm. Do you think in such a short time that you can persuade me to become a Christian? And I like Paul's response in verse 29. And Paul said, I would to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. I don't care if it takes a little time or a long time. I just want you and everyone else to become like me minus these chains. Why? Why? Because Paul had spiritual sight. He had come to the light. He had come into the kingdom of God. He had forgiveness of sins. He had the eternal inheritance. He was the enthroned prisoner speaking to the enslaved king. And then there's a third response. And that's sympathy in verse 30. And the king arose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had drawn aside, they began talking to one another saying, this man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. They got up from the meeting, and what do they do? They talk about Paul, and they show sympathy. Poor guy. If he hadn't appealed to Caesar, he might have been set free. And I can just imagine that Paul went back to his jail cell, and he's feeling some sympathy of his own. And I think he's saying, poor Agrippa, If he had only listened, he could have been set free. I'm going to close this morning with three simple lessons. Number one, the only responses Paul got on this occasion were negative. To our knowledge, on this occasion, when he spoke and gave his testimony, there was no fruit. And I remind you of that because I want it to be an encouragement to you this morning. Because you are called to be a witness. You are called to tell what you have seen and heard. You are not the prosecuting attorney. That is the job of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who convicts. We simply tell people what Jesus Christ has done in our lives. Second lesson. This is the third time that we have Paul's testimony recorded in the book of Acts. You say, yeah, and it's kind of getting monotonous. I mean, over and over again. Why does the Holy Spirit record Paul's testimony three times for us? Well, I think there's a lesson there. If Paul, the greatest preacher of all time, gave his testimony over and over again, then what does that say to you and me? We ought to be sharing our testimony with people. You may not be able to explain the ins and outs of the Bible to your friends but you can tell them what you've seen and heard. You can tell them the message that only you can get. In fact, I am convinced that the most powerful weapon we've got in evangelism is the gospel illustrated through our lives. When people see the truth of the gospel, not only in facts, but in actuality through our lives, it's the greatest weapon we've got. And the exciting thing is, when you tell someone how... Jesus Christ has changed your life. You are the world's greatest authority on that subject. We couldn't bring anybody else in who would give a, give a better presentation of what Jesus Christ has done in your life than you. And God has made you a witness, and He wants you to tell people what you've seen and heard. Third lesson the thing that gives a testimony, it's teeth are the words that Paul says in verse 22, I stand to this day. Not talking about something that happened umpteen years ago in my life. I'm talking about something that happened back then and is still bearing fruit today. I stand to this day testify. See, when people see the reality, they will listen. So keep standing and keep witnessing. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word today. Thank You for the example of the Apostle Paul, this great preacher who standing before king gave the simple details of his conversion experience. And Father, challenge us with the potential that You want to produce in our lives as we share with others what we have seen and heard, the reality of the risen Christ alive in us. And Father, as we go from here today, challenge us to be the witnesses that You've called us to be by the power of Your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name.